Good day, I'm Anne Dolinchik and you're listening to Coffee Conversations about Influencer Marketing. In today's episode, we're in conversation with Ryan Silberman, an industrial engineer and 2014 Jewish Entrepreneur of the Year. He successfully co-founded, built and exited ad tech company Popeye Media, Facebook's only marketing partner in Africa. Currently, he is the CEO of Webfluential, an influencer marketing platform reaching over 2 billion people. Grab a coffee and listen as we discuss where South Africa fits into the global influencer marketing landscape, new tech and AR tools, and how it assists with creating more effective influencer campaigns, and the David Guetta and Mum Champagne collaboration you weren't even aware of. If you enjoy this podcast, you will also enjoy our fortnightly newsletter that keeps you up to date with influencer news from around the world. Subscribe at the link in the show notes. This podcast series has been made possible through an exclusive sponsorship from SA's number one nano-influencer platform, The Salt. Most brands have a communication line to their existing customers, but not a way to get them to have additional positive brand conversations. The Salt solves the problem by identifying brand fans and getting them to talk more about their positive brand experiences. The Salts have a database of over 140,000 registered brand fans and in-depth information on each to perfectly match your brand to the right influences. Reach out to them now and see what they can do for you. Good afternoon, Ryan. Thank you so much for joining us today. Before we get into this conversation today, please can you give us a bit more detail about who you are and where your expertise lie in this industry? Thanks, Anne. Uh, thanks for the opportunity. It's great to be here. So I'm an engineer by profession, and I've been in marketing for 15 years uh, plus. I co-founded a, a company called Popeye Media, which uh, is still today Africa's only Facebook marketing partner. And in about 2015, I invested in a company called Webfluential. Um, and today I find myself as uh, the CEO of, of Webfluential. Amazing. So you're quite good. You know everything about agencies. You've started one. You're now fully invested in one. And you're the CEO. Well, I don't know if I know everything, but I've certainly <laughs> uh, seen quite a bit over the years. Yeah. So we are looking forward to you sharing your experience with us today. I think let's let's start at the beginning. I mean, influencer marketing really started kind of gaining traction and locally about 10, 11 years ago. I remember it was about what, 20 or 2009, 2010, people were really starting to look at this influencer marketing thing, but we didn't call it that. There was no real kind of word for it. We were just kind of looking at bloggers and these bloggers had some Twitter profiles um, and they gained some really good good followings. So obviously that's all changed. We now have Instagram and TikTok and million other platforms. Um, so what I wanna to chat to you about is in the beginning when we were using bloggers as influencers, which we would call them now, did we have any kind of main metrics that we actually used to measure campaigns when we use these guys? And I know also back then it was more like we would incorporate them into launches and ask them just to write an article or two. But how did we measure that to feed back to clients? Sure. So I think uh, maybe just perhaps to take a step back and understand influencer and, and influence. So I think if you think about advertising, I mean, the very first uh, adverts you know, what, what comes to mind, for example, is uh, the Marlboro Man. I mean, in essence, Marlboro Man was an influencer, even though it was just a television advert. And, and even, uh, you know, back to the, the 60s and 70s with uh, James Bond, 
um, you know, the movie, you know, the actors and 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 the movie star. Um, in essence, James Bond was an influencer. You know, he every every movie had a car, an Aston Martin, a Jaguar, BMW. He had a watch. He had a suit. Uh, he drank a, a particular drink, and and so you know. This idea of influencer marketing, even though the, the term has only been coined recently, actually it cuts to the core of, of advertising. Um, it's just, I think, become more, more widespread. So, you know, um, getting on to your specific question around uh, bloggers and whatnot. So I think bloggers, uh, I wouldn't actually even call them influencers. I mean, bloggers have always been around, if you think of, uh, journalists who publish articles in magazines. So, uh, you know, the digital age came along and, and enabled anyone um, to, to start writing about a topic that they were interested in. And hence, um, you know, the blog sprouted up. Um, but to specifically answer your question around metrics, um, I think it started with uh, reach. So, you know, you know, a brand would contract with a blogger to to uh, reach their audience um, as bloggers became more popular. But but perhaps even a step back is why did they want bloggers to to write about their brand or or experience with the brand? And really, again, it cuts to the heart of advertising or, or influencer marketing specifically, which is this word trust. Uh, or authenticity or trusted referrals. You know, if you have a brand that uh, wants to talk about themselves, well, you're not going to pay too much attention. And certainly um, with mass media and, and all the content uh, available to us today, um, we tend to trust our friends um, or independent people much more than, uh, you know, listening to a brand. And if you look at the research over the years, it's quite clear that trusted referrals um, were, were what brands were after through blogs. Um, and then specifically around metrics, yes, it was reach. It was which audiences were we reaching? Uh, I think SEO, by the way, also played a big role in the early days with, with search engines, um, you know, coming to the fore before Google even. So, you know. I don't know if people can can uh, re think back to those days, but there were lots of search engines and search engine optimization. So how to get your content um, visible and how to generate, uh, you know, good search results and, and, and traffic to your site. So all of those um, played a role in, I think, the early days of blogging specifically. But as I said, influencer marketing really dates back to the beginning of advertising. Oh, and I completely agree with you. I think also just influencing now that we've got a name for it, but it's always been around. It was like your community leaders. It was your kind of, you know, families, it was your friends. It was people you work with. It was just people that you kind of trusted in the community. And then, yes, absolutely. We had big influencers come along in the form of movie stars who were huge for decades and decades. But I think to your point is what we're looking at these days is that trusted element. Um, now there's platforms for people to actually be on where they can monetize this type of influence. And that, that's where brands really kind of started taking notes. 
and bloggers were great. They could write. They had really good skills. They they turned into this amazing photographers. If you look at how blogging progressed as well back in the day, and yeah, absolutely, we we tried to like kind of tap into their audiences, and we had that reach going. So things have obviously changed a lot. That was the beginning of what we would term influencer marketing, especially in South Africa. And I was just wondering how things have kind of changed in expectation wise. Now, when we look at, there's still lots of bloggers around who's still very much trusted. Plus we've got now content creators and other types of influencers that's, that's across different platforms. But back then, what would brands typically offer a, a blogger and, and how has it changed now from the expectations from that influencer side um, versus what the brands are also expecting from them and what they reciprocate and giving? Yeah, for sure. I think that, you know, in the early days, product reviews, so the bloggers would, would get the actual product, so they would get to experience and perhaps even keep it or drive it for <laughs> for a couple of months, whatever the case may be. Um, but as, as the industry started to grow and, you know, um, the opportunity to become a full-time blogger, a mommy blogger, for example, um, you know, uh, started to arise. So this became a paid opportunity. Um, so, so I mean, what I'd like to do is potentially divide the conversation into two. So if you think of the traditional PR firms, um, even before, let's say, influencers, you know, the, the term was coined, you had PR firms who would send out products for reviews and typically, um, the gift of the product was enough. Um, but as as the power started to shift to the blog or the influencer, and we can talk a little bit about that power dynamic, which I think is interesting. So um, bloggers or influencers started to demand, you know, actual payment for their time, for their energy, for their content creation, um, and for potentially reaching their audience. So so over time, you see how this has changed. And I think it kind of also mirrors, you know, if you think of the early days of digital and digital advertising, where it started was around, the, you know, the concept of paying for eyeballs, much like television or radio. So cost per thousand impressions, you know, that was that was the measurement. But as as you know, time went on, as technology got more sophisticated, as brands started to ask the question, which they still do, by the way, you know, which part of my marketing budget is actually working? So the metrics started to change. So, for example, it moved from, you know, cost per uh, thousand impressions to cost per click and even then to cost per lead or cost per test drive or cost per sale even. So, you know, so, so the whole industry has evolved and, and, you know, that's where we find ourselves today. So that is interesting. Um, and that leads perfectly into, into my next question. It's like, when did we see this big shift starting to happen? And what led to this? Was it purely where that, that power dynamic shifted, as you say? Um, but how did that come about uh, to where we actually find ourselves today? That's, that's, that's a very, very interesting question. You know, the way I like to think of it is really with the evolution of, of mankind. Um, you know, if you think of how advertising has evolved, the, the, whole, the whole point of a, of a brand was to manufacture a product, mass produce it as, as cheap as possible, get it onto a shelf in a retail store, and then broadcast on television and radio 
um, to make people aware who then go into store and, and, and purchase the product. So the power was really in the brand's favor. The brand owned the ability to, you know, they owned how should the brand look and feel, you know, um, what, you know, how should we speak about the brand? What should the personality be, et cetera, et cetera. But as our, as, as we've evolved as mankind and as our tools and access to these tools have changed. So any person could literally start a blog, a website, even uh, produce a product um, much cheaper than a big brand. You know, the Dollar Shave Club, for example, uh, where you where you would buy a razor every month for one dollar, which was eventually bought by a large brand for I think a billion dollars or more, is a perfect example of that. And there's a there's a little story I heard once, which I think you know illustrates how this power dynamic has changed. And that is, in the old days, I'm talking 20, 30 years ago. If you think of the host of a party, the brand hosted the party and the brand controlled who would be let into the party um, and, you, you know, what's, what drinks would be served, what food would, would, would people eat. But today, the party is hosted by the consumer and the brand is outside, like knocking on the door, please let me in. And, you know, the... The way that the brands today can participate in that conversation is by leveraging someone inside the party, which is ultimately, you know, the influencer and, and what's given rise to, to influencer marketing. So, yeah, that's how I like to think about it. I love that story because it does just kind of sum it up really nicely. And I feel like if you tell that to, to anyone who's kind of wondering or not really understanding, that is like a perfect way to sum it up. So thanks for that. I'm going to use it. I'm going to steal it, Ryan. <laughs> Great. I stole it too, so go for it. <laughs> Amazing. So then when we look at tech, and you also just kind of touched on it, like our tech has really changed over the last couple of years, especially with the rise of our influencer marketing. We needed more tech and more tools to really start um, deep diving into metrics to give brands deeper insights that they can then use going forward as well when they want to do other um, campaigns and understanding their consumer a lot better. But we also have AI these days who not only kind of look at our audiences and how we match our influences, but it's also really great at, at kind of delivering those results when we want to track ROI, whatever that may mean for that um, client or that brand. But really, it's it happened. Like for me, it just feels like overnight we went from vanity metrics to this really cool tech. How far have we really progressed with that in the last couple of years? Hashtag no filter. That's how this podcast is delivering real down-to-earth stories told by real people. For an influencer campaign that takes brand conversation to everyday real-life situations, go check out thesalt.co.za. They are the undisputed experts in real influencer marketing. So I think that, you know, technology is a wonderful thing and it's certainly advanced, um, you know, significantly uh, every year. You know, in our industry, literally, if, you, if you're not innovating, you know, every six months, you, you really are falling behind. But at the end of the day, we're dealing with humans. <laughs> you know, we're dealing with people who have feelings, who have emotions, who are entrenched in different cultures. And technology can only get you so far. So, so that's the one side of the coin. On the other side is 
uh, again, this, this old movie, which I love, which is called What Women Want. What do women want? Have you ever seen that movie with Mel Gibson? I have. I think that was somewhere <laughs> in the 90s or early 2000s. Absolutely, yeah. So, yeah. So, 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 you know, by the same token, what, what do brands want? What does a company want? And there's really one answer to that. Well, there could be many, but ultimately it all leads to sales. Okay, so a brand wants to drive sales. And that's really why advertising and marketing, you know, exists. And so all this technology, you know, enables us to really get better and more efficient at driving those sales. So, um, you know, some insights into, into artificial intelligence and, and, and technology. So, yes, I think there are uh, lots of tools um, to be able to search and discover and identify particular influences who might uh, be a good fit with your audience. But I think really companies and brands obsess too much about that. Um, you know, particularly given the understanding that organic reach uh, on most social networks uh, is not very good. And so ultimately, does the, does the following and the audience of the influencer play as much a role as we all give or like to think it does? That's a question mark. Um, so yeah, at the end of the day, it's the ability to to have the right. We, we have four pillars that we like to think of it. So yes, you need technology, and that helps you uh, with workflow. It helps you with matching the right brand to the right influencer. You need inventory, which is really the influencers and the creators. You need you know you know you need you need good uh, creators. You need a, a large. Um, force or, or, or database of these influences. But the last two pillars really are, for me, most important, and that is the strategy. So great, you've, you've got the technology, you've, you know, this AI, you've, you've identified the influencer, but now what are we going to do with the influencer? And that's a big question. And even if you know what to do, if, if you get the first three pillars right, the last pillar is on the execution of the influencer campaign which is where, by the way, 90% of failures happen. You know, you might get the first three pillars right. It's all down to the execution. So how do you get the influencer to post at the right time, to the right channel, to make sure it's brand safe, to make sure the brand has approved it, and how do you do this all at scale? So technology plays a great role in the workflow, uh, in the tracking, uh, in identifying those influencers, but really it all comes down to, to people. Uh, at the end of the day. I love how you unpack that because I also have a similar view to you. And I think that that human connection will always remain. Um, and that's kind of why people follow other people online, on their blogs, on social media. It's because they feel some kind of connection or aspiration to be that person. So that's never going to go. And I also I completely agree that we use our influences more as a value culture fit or a fit to the campaign as well to get the aesthetic right. But then with the algorithms, the way it is, like you say, we're only seeing about what reaching 10 to 15 percent of organic audiences these days. Is it that important or is it more important that we have the right creative and when we then use that creative to target specific audiences um, using technology, using performance media, is that not what's more important at this point? 
So Ryan, that said, where do you think we will be in the next two, three years? I mean, this industry travels at the speed of light. So even looking at next year could be interesting. But where do you think we're going with our technology, with our measurement, with reporting on certain factors to actually really give our brands Mm -hmm. more insights? So I think there's a number of trends shaping this industry, um, which is very interesting to think about. So let me maybe talk through a couple of them. So on the one hand, you've got this direct relationship between the size of your audience and your level of influence. So if you think of it on a graph, literally the smaller your audience, the higher the degree of influence you have quite literally it's a straight line and to 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 maybe digest that a little bit if you perhaps are in the market for a new phone or a new car or you would like uh, to experience some new music or you know or you're in an area and you want uh, a great coffee you know you're going to basically talk to those you trust and you're going to ask them to say what what would you recommend for my particular you know which coffee shop should i attend if I'm in Cape Town for the day or whatever it might be. And so that is a a huge force which is shaping, um, you know, the industry given the advancement of technology. And that's that's evident in the rise of nano-influencers. So, you know, if if you think about those two points, quite literally the smaller you're following, the higher the degree of influence, which means um, that, and by the way, just in marketing in general, Um, We talk about segmentation, um, customer segments, and the ability to customize content to a particular type of audience. The the smaller the segment, the higher the success rate because you can talk the same language. So it's actually the same trend, but applied to nano-influencers or influencers, nano-influencers is the future. And so the technology to enable identifying working with nano influencers will grow. So I think that's one trend that's shaping the industry. I think the second trend, which is very interesting, particularly from a media and advertising uh, perspective, is privacy and data privacy. So if you look at the big trends um, overseas, particularly in the US and and UK and Western countries, is um, iOS, the, the limitation of enabling brands to reach people through iOS uh, is becoming a problem. And likewise, if you look at uh, uh, the, the cookie crumbling or, um, you know, it, the enforcing um, people, brands, um, or the, the guidelines, the, the regulations around having access to people through cookies, through their digital footprint, um, is another huge trend. So if we take these two trends and we we look at where this is all going, the power is going to be even more in the hands of the influencers because really um, influencers are um, private entities versus the big Facebooks and the Googles who own these mass communities. So now the ability to reach people at scale through their niche followings will be directly to influencers. And so there's this power shift that that will happen in the future. So I hope hope I summarized it well, but I think those are a couple of the big trends, you know, shaping our industry going forward. 
No, absolutely. And it does make you think, and you're so right, that power is shifting. People are opting out to, to get served certain ads. And now here you have influencers who have the power. They've got opted in audiences who want to see their content. So again, I think taking back to what you were saying earlier about executing campaigns, it's incredibly important to make sure that you, you have the right people to speak to the right people so we can target the right people at the end of the day. So Ryan, then when we look at the South African influencer market or our landscape, and we look at other countries that are obviously a lot more developed than us, particularly if we're looking at UK, US, Australia, and China, who's miles ahead of us, where does South Africa kind of fall into like the global kind of landscape when we look at influencer marketing? So uh, to be honest, I don't think we're that far behind. Um, I, I really think it's a function of our uh, the size of our population um, as opposed to you know our advancement in technology or, or anything else. So if you look at South Africa, we are culturally diverse, um, which brings amazing content opportunities and um, you know rich conversations, you know niche uh, niche audiences, and we have the tools. You know tools today, um, both homegrown and uh, you know grown overseas, can be leveraged anywhere in the world. It's a it's a global economy. So I actually don't think we're that far behind. And in fact, in a lot of cases. We, we, we are leading, um, you know, I think back to a campaign we did, sure, uh, over 10 years ago, where we launched a Peugeot card, a Peugeot 208, and I, I never forget, it was our first campaign, we didn't even know it was an influencer campaign, and we, we put a, a, a celebrity uh, radio host in a car, we put a camera, and he went riding around the car, picking up people for two weeks, and that was live streamed. Um, and so that was like a world first, but nobody had ever done that 10, 15 years ago. Um, so, yeah, so I think we right up there. Um, I think it's, it's a function of population. So if you look at, if you look at the, the macro or celebrities from the US, for example, these are movie stars and they are exposed to global audiences versus our macro influencers who perhaps are just locally known. And really, that's a function of our population um, and, and the economies as opposed to the technology. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I 100% agree with you. And I also think, to your point, we are so unique that we bring such dynamic, um, extra flavor that you can't see anywhere else in the world. And I suppose that is with every market, they bring their own flair. But are there certain trends that... Because we, we might not be miles behind, but we are a little bit behind when it comes to following trends. Are there a couple of trends that we, we've recognized, but we've realized, ah, uh-uh, this is not for our local kind of market? And do we kind of create our own little trends that, that we see other countries aren't doing? Yeah, I think most definitely. I mean, I'd be, it would be difficult to pick out, um, you know, specific trends. But again, I think it's shaped by our culture. So if you think of our, our languages, our humor, um, our, you know, what shapes our society, you won't really find that. It, it won't really mean anything to anybody overseas. But to us, it, it's, it's, you know, we're really passionate about brying and rugby and 
uh, Afrikaans and, and, you know, a whole bunch of other stuff which just have no place anywhere else in the world. So I think we definitely create our own trends um, and we lend from, you know, from, from overseas as well. And I, I do love our markets, especially in the influence marketing space. It's just, to your point, like we have all these beautiful cultures that that's just like a melting pot. And that content creation is amazing when you look across brands and what they need. It is actually really beautiful to observe. And to that, I want to ask you, I know you spoke about uh, the Peugeot campaign that you guys didn't even know was an influencer campaign, which actually sounds like it was amazing. I would love to go read up more about that. Um, but was there a campaign over maybe the last year that, that really s- stuck out for you, especially um, taking into consideration how far we've come with AI and tech and matching influencers and brands and informing our strategy? Um, is there anything that stood out for you? Yeah, so I think uh, I think there's a few things. So I think locally um, you'd be surprised, but some of the campaigns are leveraging TikTok to sell uh, car insurance, believe it or not, and and those are those campaigns are actually outperforming, you know, your traditional digital marketing through Google and Facebook, um, you know, and I think it speaks to um, the tool, you know, the the ability for an influencer or a creator or anybody to create content which is meaningful which connects with an audience and then to scale that to the right people uh, and enable those those people to 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 then get a quote and take up insurance so so that really is one that that comes to mind but i think uh if if i had to think of perhaps two campaigns uh one recent maybe one not so recent which i think illustrates you know where we're going and and what brands should be striving for so let me start with a recent one. There was an award-winning campaign by Cheetos. I don't know if you know Cheetos. They're uh, yeah. chips. So they launched uh, they launched a popcorn uh, product. And, you know, they, they looked at uh, insights. So, you know, so they did some research into, into how people experience the product. And one of the insights revealed that actually people don't enjoy it because when they eat cheetos their hands get full of what do you call it crumbs or whatever yeah. you, you know they get orange it's orange <laughs> and it's sticky and <laughs> yeah and, and it's like disgusting but that revealed some insight from a, a lot of uh, a lot of their consumers that actually if i've eaten cheetos then i can kind of like opt out from life so if my boss comes to me and hands me a report I'm like, no, sorry, uh, you know, my hands are, are messy and the boss will say, oh, sorry, I don't want to ruin my report. Or if your friend <laughs> needs help moving the couch, you can opt out of that. You can't touch it. And so they created this campaign with, you remember MC Hammer, um, you, can't, yes. you, can't, you can't touch this. And that became quite a viral campaign just from the insight of understanding consumer behavior and then turning that on its head into a positive which was an amazing strategy from, from the particular agency. So that's one campaign that, that leverages, I suppose, traditional uh, strategic thought, but also leveraging popular culture and influencer, etc. So that's great. And then I think one campaign which 
which always stands out for me is, in fact, people probably don't realize it's a campaign, but there, there's a there's a song that was written by David uh, Guetta, Guetta, or however you pronounce it, which is called Dangerous. If you watch the music video, it's about Formula One drivers or racing car drivers. And this song, I think at the time, it, it really topped the charts. It was an amazing, amazing song. But I actually learned only afterwards that it was a collaboration with an alcohol brand where the idea of drinking champagne, particularly in a younger audience, was shifting. I mean, younger audiences were not drinking champagne. And so the brief to David was, how do we get um, younger audiences to consider champagne? And so he wrote the song and, and made this video because in Formula One, what do you do when you celebrate at the end of the race? Well, you, you celebrate with champagne. And that was an amazing case study of, you know, embedding, you know, using culture, using um, aspiration, using music to, to, to spread that message subtly. I mean, I didn't even know that that was a brand campaign. But, no. but I think those are probably the best, the best examples. And that's a great case study, which I always, uh, you know, think about and, and refer back to. Every race we watched... We imagined it was us, standing on that podium, spraying the crowd with champagne, sitting in one of those cars, navigating every curve, fighting every battle on the track. We lived every moment. I didn't know that was a brand collaboration either and I would be I would love to know if it actually shifted the needle and um, saw younger people consuming champagne more so Ryan that comes to the end of our podcast episode uh, thank you so much for chatting to us for giving us some insights and for spreading your wisdom to us but before we go would you please tell everyone where they can find you online if they want to learn more about you and what you do? Where's the best place for them to find you? Sure, they can just search for my name on, on LinkedIn. It's probably the best way to, to find me. And yeah, all my details are, are over there. So yeah, I look forward to it. And thank you so much for, for hosting me. Thank you so much, Ryan. And I'm sure we'll chat soon. This podcast series has been made possible by The Salt the influencer company that turns influence into affluence. In the same way that information is presented in this podcast in a relatable and authentic way, The Salt gets your customers to tell their real brand stories to their community. Go to thesalt.co.za to learn more about how The Salt can help you grow your business.